Well, good afternoon, everyone. Still out there? Yep. Good. Good. Well, it's good to it's good to be here um, this weekend. We've heard all kinds of tributes to the late Queen Elizabeth, haven't we? Uh, I heard someone say that it's rare to see someone bear such a heavy crown with such a light touch. And we need to recognise her many years of service now as the crown passes down to her son. Will he be a good king? Will the new prime minister be a good prime minister? Will our leaders do us good? We live in a moment of profound uncertainty. Across the world, our country, in our homes this winter, even in our own hearts, life feels chaotic. Uncertainty does stir up some of the most fundamental questions we have. Are we going to be okay? Who is really in charge? And whoever it is, is that a good thing? Are we going to be okay? And now you may have noticed that the passage we're focused on this afternoon is in the footnotes of most of our Bibles. And now by considering the hundreds of tiny fragments of manuscripts, uh, manuscripts that is little pieces of paper that um, Matthew, the writer of the gospel, would have written down his gospel by considering tiny fragments of these. Historians and Bible scholars have been able to determine that those 15 words, that footnote, they were added. They were added to the prayer a couple of hundred years later by an early Syrian Christian community. It was as they used the Lord's Prayer, just as we've been using it over the last few weeks, they did a kind of typical custom of adding a doxology at the end of a public prayer. A doxology is a bit of liturgy, a kind of burst of celebration in response to God. Now, if that's news to you, it might seem a bit unnerving. But here's why it's actually incredibly reassuring. First of all, the accuracy of the dating and the sheer amount of these manuscript fragments means that we can have confidence that we are reading a translation of what Matthew really wrote down those 2,000 years ago. Secondly, the, the preservation and inclusion of this final phrase means that we can have confidence that we are actually continuing in the historic faith that sprouted in tiny Christian communities around Jerusalem, spread to places like Syria, and now has branched out into almost every country in the world. Yet those, um, those first those early years of Christianity were marked by profound uncertainty. Unjust emperors, brutal empires, bloody persecution, devastating wars. You see, it's in that context 
that after praying the Lord's Prayer, those early Syrian Christians, well, they would choose praise. They chose these words. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. They would, as a routine, they would choose praise. And what we read in First um, Chronicles is, is just so similar. Verses 11 to 13 in particular. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. They chose praise in uncertain days. And so what about us? What about you and me? In our moment of profound uncertainty, who is in charge? And is that good news? Are they worth celebrating? And I think I'm here this afternoon to tell you that God is in charge. And that's good news for you. One of the fundamental differences that's taught throughout the Bible is the difference between the creator and his creation. They are completely different and separate categories. First of all, because God creates everything out of nothing, he owns it all. Fundamentally, the world is his domain. It's all his stuff. And secondly, although human beings hold a unique place as those made in the image of God to take care of creation, human beings are, in fact, created beings. We are in that second category as part of the created order. Yet that's that's not a, a difference that we rush to recognize. The very fact that we recoil at the idea of the majestic God doing whatever he wants is a sign that deep down humanity doesn't really give God the honor that he's due. We think far too little of him. And that kind of disregard for God is in each of us. But it was embodied, I think, in the life of an oppressive king of Egypt who ruled around 1,300 years before Christ. This human king who enslaved God's people, he was thought of as a god with absolute power. And he ends up going head to head with God. It's recorded in the book of Exodus. And the king of Egypt essentially says to God's messenger, I don't even know this God. Who is this guy? And God, through his messenger, replies, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. So God puts on a cosmic display of supreme power and crumbles the king of Egypt like clay in his hand. 
And suddenly it's clear again that the creator is in a completely different category, a higher category to his creation. God is in charge, even when it's not immediately obvious. And I wonder if that's not a million miles away from your own experience. The Bible and our world is full of human beings grappling with a God who simply will not fall in line with our priorities. He does whatever he wants. He isn't a genie who lives to give us what we want. And I wonder if in part that's because what we want often is, when we really think about it, a world without him. Now, there's a story that Jesus tells. It's one of the most famous parables that he teaches. It begins with a wealthy father and his two sons. One day, the youngest son asks the father for his share of the inheritance. He basically says to him, now, dad, honestly, I'm not saying I wish you were dead, but in terms of your stuff, in terms of the inheritance, do you think from now on we could live as if you were dead? No offense, no offense, but you're really not at the center of my happiness. You're kind of at the moment in the way of it. No offense, of course. And the father grants his request, the son takes his share, and he squanders it until he returns home to the father to ask for forgiveness. And he says to him, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The whole parable really is about the father's response as he welcomes him back, running to him, hugging him, kissing him, and restoring him. And now the first time I heard that parable, my mind was blown by the father's forgiveness of the son. Like I'd come to realize that like the son, I so often live in God's world as if God was in the way of my happiness. And it was only after reading it again and someone pointing it out to me that I began to see the older brother's response. I don't know if you've read it and noticed it. You see, when the younger son returns, the father celebrates, but the older son doesn't. In fact, he's furious with the father. He says, I've been slaving away for you. I've ticked every single box. I've followed all of the rules. I've been at every single prayer meeting. And I'm stood here empty-handed. You see, there are um, two different expressions of the same heart towards the father. Both brothers see the father as a means to an end, a kind of step along the way. They want his stuff. The younger tries to snatch at it. The older tries to earn it through his obedience. The younger son's lack of care for the father, it's exposed by his own actions. The older son's lack of care for the father is exposed by the father simply doing what the father wants to do. Both sons have, have called hearts towards the father. 
And like the sons, our lives often reveal that we want the best of the father's world without a second thought for the father himself. I mean, who here has not found themselves thinking, if only I was in control, if only I had more power, if I could just get these kids to do what I want them to do. Or who here hasn't manipulated, pushed others around, bent the truth to serve ourselves? You see, in a world of uncertainty, a lot of the tension we feel includes a sense that we'd be better off if we were in charge. You see, the Bible is full of human beings like you and me grappling with a God who simply will not fall in line with what we want because he's in charge. He is who he is. He does whatever he wants to do. It's his kingdom. It's his power. And left to our own devices, we don't respond well to that. And I think this is probably hardest when our prayers seem to go unanswered. Prayers that may voice the deepest, even the, the, the kind of the best and purest yearnings that we have. Prayers that we may have been praying for years or decades. And now I don't know why your specific prayers might seem to go unanswered. But there are some certainties to encourage us and some possibilities to consider. You see, when we pray in our uncertain world, we can be sure that God is in charge. Our lives are his jurisdiction. And he's not like us. He hasn't stepped away. He hasn't drifted off at the wheel. He hasn't lost interest. We can also be sure that the world isn't uncertain to God. Like We struggle with uncertainty because we don't have all of the information. Our majestic creator in his category above the creation, oh, he has all of the information. It is possible, however, that prayers that seem unanswered have in fact been answered, perhaps with an answer we, we don't want to hear. And this is a hard thing. But because God says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, God may say no to our most heartfelt prayers. He may also say, not quite. Not quite now. Not quite in that way. Not quite this time. Not quite yet. Not quite the best thing for you. Someone said, um, if we know what God knows, we would ask for exactly what he gives. In the hardest moment, moments of our lives, we find it near impossible to imagine a destination so good that would just justify a journey so tough. 
friends, we don't have all of the information. We have the one who does. And most significantly, I think, our unanswered prayers are not God's chosen strategy to deal with those who refuse to recognize his kingdom and power. To put that another way, God does not repay our rebellion with silence. Our cold hearts haven't chilled his. He doesn't treat us as we deserve to be treated. Because God does what he wants to do. But what is it that he wants to do? Well, even though you've lived in God's world without giving a second thought, God wants to do you good. And of course, this is personal to God. We have a creator who is grieved to the heart by his creatures who have become rebels. There's no way he can't take that personally as the one who breathed life into us. Not a grand scale of things. We've sided with the king of Egypt who thought nothing of God. And really, that should seal our fate. But God, perfect in his justice, he holds back judgment and instead speaks a word of promise, the promise of blessing and mercy and redemption and a world made new. And all those things, not as random acts of kindness, but because God is the compassionate and gracious God. And though all, although it may not be obvious, he is in charge. In fact, what, what may appear like a world spinning out of control, may well, it may well eventually turn out to be the precise conditions that God uses to display the fullest sense of who he is. And we can begin to get our heads around this, I think, when we look at where the Bible says creation and everything is heading. One of the most vivid descriptions of the kingdom of God finally coming in its fullness is found in Revelation 5. I'll read verse 6 and from 9 onwards. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them into a kingdom, and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. 
Then I heard every creature in heaven, on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You see, the the kingdom of heaven's throne room is an arena of deafening praise. But what I want us to notice today is that central to that praise, central to God's forever glory, are the unbelievable lengths he's willing to go to rescue rebels. The lamb is worthy because he was slain. You see, the glory of God's kingdom is his king. Jesus, the lamb of God. The glory of God's power is how he has chosen to use it to sacrifice himself for those who wouldn't even give him a second thought. Now, this is Nick Bostich. And you might not think it to look at him, but he is glorious. And now, if he showed you a picture of his scars, if if he showed you his hands and the damaged skin covering his right forearm, if he told you the story of his scars, you'd quickly come to understand his glory. And I'll tell you that story now. It was actually around six weeks ago that Nick was driving through a residential neighborhood late at night when he saw a house engulfed in flames. And without even thinking about it, he pulled over, scrambled out of his vehicle, and ran to the house. And with no regard for his own safety, he went in. He screamed, is there anybody there? No response. He screamed again from the door, trying to see through the thick, black, choky smoke. It was impossible. The heat was brutal. But he was able to make out the faint silhouette at the top of the stairs. It was Sienna. and She was 18 at the time. And she was the eldest of the five children in the house that night. Nick somehow helped them down the stairs, guiding them with the sound of his voice. And he guided them out to safety. But once they were out of the flames, they counted. And there were only three children with them. Sienna's six-year-old sister, Kehlani, was still inside the house. And in an uh, interview later, this is what Nick said. I ran inside and looked under beds, closets, but I couldn't find her. But when I got to the stairs, I heard some faint crying. I thought, I don't want to die here. But he knew the house would soon be completely impossible to escape from, so he went further in. He moved towards the cries. But by the time he'd found Kehlani, the six-year-old, the hallway behind him and the way out of the house was completely ablaze. 
He, he picked her up and headed up the stairs, nearly pitch black with smoke. He was just about able to see the light from a street lamp shining through a rear bedroom window. And he struggled through the smoke towards it. He broke the window open with his bare hands. He wrapped himself around Kehlani and he leapt into the air, tumbling two stories and breaking the girl's fall with his own body. And as he emerged from the rear of the home, emergency vehicles began to arrive, capturing the final moments of his rescue on their body cameras. And after reuniting Kehlani with her siblings, Nick collapsed before receiving medical attention. He was severely injured in the rescue and he had to be rushed to hospital. But by risking his life and at the cost of various injuries, Nick saved everyone trapped inside that house that night. You see, the scars on Nick's hands and body tell the story of his moment of glory. And think about it, when I showed you that first picture, whatever you thought of him, and suddenly what you think of him now, that difference is glory. It's a person's inner excellence being made public through their praiseworthy actions. So that God's glory is his inner excellence being made public through his praiseworthy actions. You see, if Nick is praised for responding to a random event, then how much more worthy is the lamb who planned to show up in our neighbourhood? Who took on flesh and was born into weakness for us? Just like Nick, he wrapped him, who wrapped himself around Kehlani, Jesus got close enough to wrap himself around us. Joined to him wherever he goes, we go. Kind of ensphered in him. And if Nick is praised for rescuing people he didn't know, then how much more worthy is the lamb who rescues those who want nothing to do with him? Those who deserve the fate of rebels. When flames were brutal, Nick went further in. When the crowds jeered and the soldiers spat and his enemies cried out for blood, Jesus went further in. And if Nick is praised for risking his life, then how much more is worthy is the lamb who gave his life and was slain for the sin of the world? Nick said, I don't want to die here. Jesus said, I came here to die. He submitted himself to death. Even the humiliation of a public execution for us. Jesus lived the perfect life all of us should live but haven't. 
And Jesus died the death that none of us want to die. And Philippians says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The glory of Nick's scars, well, it's great, but it's just a shadow of the glory of the scars of the crucified Son of God. Not even death could rob him. It only made him stronger for us. And there's a a really interesting moment in one of Paul's letters to the Corinthian church where he writes about his prayer for healing. He had something wrong with his eyes and three times he pleaded with the Lord to no avail. Instead, Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What if God's priority in your life is not your immediate comfort? What if God's what if God isn't working to give you a sense that your circumstances are under your control? What if God's highest priority in your life is your growing awareness of the power of his grace for you? What if the very best thing God can do for you is to unite you with Jesus, to ensphere you in his righteousness, his royal status, his way of service, his mission, sharing in his suffering and in his glory? How would your life change if you dedicated it to those things? Or to put it another way, God has given us the greatest thing he has to give. Himself. Completely, fully, as Father, as Saviour, as Spirit. To have God and enjoy him is the greatest freedom any of us can know. And to, to, to conclude, I think this is the, one of the amazing things. In one sense, God's glory is, th- is that he comes down to us. That he makes himself small and accessible, drawing near with a tender heart to take his rightful place at the centre of our lives and happiness. In another sense, though, God's glory is that we are drawn up into him, taking our place in the majestic life of God. We are invited into his kingdom to be sustained by his power. And through joining in the king's self 
life-giving suffering we share in his glory. So that like a seasoned sailor who invites his young granddaughter out onto the water with him, God's glory is at least two things at once. God's glory is his majesty. He is in control. He is in charge. He is in command without even having to think about it. And at the exact same time, God's glory is in his tenderness. The the incredible compassion that drives him to make his majesty bearable and beneficial to the little ones he loves. Majestic and tender-hearted. And as she matures, she'll begin to understand that she is far less in control than she thinks she is. But that's okay. Because she also begins to understand that if she wasn't there because she was needed, she must have been there because she was wanted. And after years together on the water, the sailor's glory, the sailor's glory is that with every mention of his name, her little heart jumps for joy. How much more worthy is your God? Worthy of your praise. Worthy of your service. Friends, worthy of your heart. His is the kingdom. His is the power. And his is the glory, majestic and tender-hearted. Will you trust him? Today, again, and again, and again, and again. You see, God is in charge, and that is the very best news you could hope to hear. And so... In profound moments of uncertainty, why would that small Syrian Christian community choose to praise? Well, if they knew what we know about God, why would they not? Why don't we do that now? Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together now. And in that footnote, let's praise our God.